Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour. Now, you might have noticed my opening is a little bit more subdued than usual. And you might be asking, is Brian ill? Is he down in the dumpsies? No, no. It's just in London, I was a little too boisterous. And also, <laughs> I had to do it twice. So <laughs> taking it down a notch. Alex, how are you? Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Good to see you, my friend. I have a cold. So I, for the first time in our podcast, I'm having Lemsip. I don't know if you have Lemsip in the US, but it's like a cold cure. Oh, well, I, you know, there's no vodka in there or anything, though. There is no, there is no vodka. All right. Well, luckily, I poured a double. Good Uh, man. This is Polish vodka in honor of our first story and, you know, just Poland generally. And a little tonic. Drinking for two. I appreciate it. Never let it be said I didn't do the least uh, I could do for the show. So uh, without further ado... Let's just get right to uh, the stories. I wanted to talk about Ukraine and Russia and nuclear weapons uh, at the end, but let's tell the stories first. And this time, folks, we have a combo. We have a story from the OG, Lessons from History, and we have a story from more Lessons of History. And also a first on our podcast, I'm not going to make a joke about the title. All right. Alex, I love the fact that we're finally getting to this story from the OG because it has a personal connection for you. It does. We talk about family a lot on the podcast, and uh, my grandfather was a glider pilot at uh, Arnhem, um, so I've always taken an interest in paratroopers. Famously, of course, our um, the Bridge Too Far, the movie, uh, yeah. our forces were captured um, in a bit of a, uh, overreach, uh, and the first Allied um, parachute drop in um, enemy territory was called Operation Colossus. It was in early 1941. And that was a raid carried out in Italy by British commandos. Um, and it was a unit that became the special air service, the, the SAS. And that was a very mixed bag, Brian. Um, successfully tested the concept that uh, such missions could be done. and But the aqueduct that they had targeted was, was harmed, but it was very swiftly repaired. And they were all caught by the Italians. So no enormous success. But one week later, which is what I want to talk about, there was a much more significant raid. And it was the first by many, uh, by the unit concerned, along with their, their uh, colleagues in Special Operations Executive at SOE uh, from the UK. And this was not carried out by the British. Uh, the Chickachemni uh, were Polish paratroopers. Well, and that, thank you very much. Well, I've had a bit of practice because I'm from East Anglia, which is the the, uh, the east of England, which is where they trained. Chickachemni means the silent and unseen. And they trained in exile in, in England at a place called Audley End. And it's a beautiful stately home in Essex, which is the county to the south of where I'm from in Suffolk. And there's a nearby railway station called Audley End named after it. And people go past it on the train all the time, not knowing what this place means and, and the history uh, that it has. And in the beautiful until today, until today and in the beautiful manicured grounds of, of this stately home, uh, these Polish guys uh, trained, um, you know, night maneuvers, silent assassination, creeping up on sentries and so forth. But and occasionally they had forays uh, beyond uh, their um, stately home in the local area. One, which I enjoy thinking about, was a mock raid on uh, the train station. So for those who are listening who know what I'm talking about, you can think about that when you um, pass through it. And the another was a full-blown attack exercise on the local post office, uh, which must have put the fear of God into Mrs. Goggins or whoever was manning the, the post office. Okay, let me just stop you right there because I yeah. made a note to ask you this. Uh, Mrs. Goggins, is this a thing in the UK or is just a random name you oh, made up? No, no, no. Is it a thing in the UK? Mrs. Goggins is a profound figure of cultural relevance in uh, the UK. Mrs. Goggins is a uh, central figure in Postman Pat, 
which is a uh, a cartoon in, in the UK soon. I'm sure to be renamed Post Person Pat, but for the time being, Post Person Pat uh, remains, and Mrs. Goggins is is one of his luminaries in the postal delivery world. Well, well, uh, I can tell you, as our listeners, I'm not, I'm not particularly cultured, but I will tell you, I doubt ten. Americans would be able to identify Mrs. Goggins or, or even know what it referred to now. But now I have to ask, is Postman Pat more or less popular than Smokey Stover? Oh, much more, back? much more. Uh, but I, I like to much, much more popular in the UK, at least. Uh, Mrs. Goggins and Postman Pat are central figures from many English childhoods, including my own. But the point yeah. is, of course, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds uh, even raids of polish paratroopers um they they also did some night maneuvers around audley end which led to punch-ups with uh, both the essex police and uh, units from the old home guard which is a a very good reference by the way to um a tv show in uh in the uk called dad's army uh, which played for I think I think it played for longer than the Second World War. Certainly, yeah. like uh, Mash played Mash. longer than yeah. Korea, yeah. the Korean War. Um, and if it didn't actually wasn't created and played for longer than the Second World War, it certainly had repeats <clears throat> for decades longer than the Second World War. Anyway, so all of these guys must have been surprised by these poles charging around their patch. Anyway, their historic first drop, which is what I wanted to talk about was a raid behind enemy lines in their beloved Polish homeland, which was, of course, occupied by the Germans uh, on the night of the 15th to 16th of February 1941. Three agents were returned to Poland after a five and a half hour flight from RAF Stradishall, which is just a little bit to the south of my uh, native Bury St. Edmunds. Um, by the way, that site at Stradishall is now occupied by two prisons, um, uh, High Point North, or we used to, I used to be called the High Point Hotel, um, and High Point South, uh, which uh, held uh, George Michael uh, as an inmate. Uh, and interesting, it was a, the musician. Uh, and High yeah, Point yeah. North, which was a woman's prison, uh, and then um, was made a mixed prison, also had Boy George uh, briefly as an inmate. So these are apparently kind of... he could he could have been an inmate in either iteration. He, well, that's danger zone talking, and how dare you assume a gender either way? I suppose. Uh, Address but... your cards and letters to Alex Dean, everybody. As we are discussing this, we just saw the immolation of a political leader in my country, um, the long-standing leader of the Scottish National Party, Nicola Sturgeon, decided to take her party, which was created to realise uh, independence for her country and die on the hill of trying to send a male rapist to a female prison. So anyway, that wasn't what I wanted to get in on, but that, that was the, uh, that, that, that occurred to me as we were discussing these, um, what happened to RAS Stradishall. Anyway, so they take off from RAS Stradishall and they fly to, to Poland. Not an ideal first attempt. Uh, they were dropped 30 miles from the intended drop site. That is not precision flying. Still, um, a man, and my pronunciation may be off here, called Arkady Rezogski, Rezogski, who was the Polish ambassador to the UK when I wrote my uh, my first book, he said that the Chickachemny's first mission offered a glimmer of hope to the besieged homeland that help was coming. And I, I, I take pride in that as someone from yeah. East Anglia. And over the years, uh, the Chickachemny delivered funds and materiel to the resistance, and they became officers in the Polish secret army, and they taught others the guerrilla warfare lessons that they had been taught at Audley End. And they also conveyed, so they, they were delivering agents to be embedded in the underground movement. These guys were all volunteers, Brian. And, and Britain is, is proud to have trained them in COVID operations, uh, cryptography, intelligence gathering, sabotage, and of course, our national pastime of queuing. Um, so some 316 Chickachemny were dropped uh, from Britain into occupied Poland between 1941 and 1945. Over a hundred died in combat or were executed after being captured by the Germans, and eighteen more died um, in action during the Warsaw Uprising, which was a noble endeavour. Those raids stopped in 1944 after most of Poland was occupied by the Red Army, and I think a grim indication of the future that awaited um, Poland was given by the fact that, in addition to those killed by the Nazis, Nine further Chickachemny 
were executed after the war by the communist regime that was established by the Russians in Poland. But all, all in all, some uh, 527 Polish uh, warriors completed their special training at Audley End House, and they were heroes all. And this sedate spot in rural Essex, in my country, in the words of English heritage, was the spiritual home of wartime resistance to the Poles. And that is why I told their story. That's quite a thing for your country. Thank you for doing that. And it does make me wonder if this podcast will help East Anglia become better known for this than Leatherface or whoever that guy is that's in Bury St. Edmunds. Uh, uh, what do you, what yeah. do you call that guy? Uh, I, I, well, yes, you're talking about um, the, 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 I touched the Bible bound in the skin of William Cordor That's and it. Yeah. Uh, Leatherface is not what I called him, but, but I also saw his death mask. Uh, which was a once common tradition. You took a cast oh, yeah. from someone's uh, body after they died, but Corder's uh, body, which was um, flayed after he died, it was skinned after he died. Um, they took some of the skin and made it into a Bible. And I'm pretty sure it's not our imagination that we we, we touched it. I think we I think we did. The 1980s may feel impossibly long ago uh, to some of our younger listeners and to, to you and I, it may feel like yesterday. But uh, yes, let us hope that Chicka Chemney uh, become better known than William Corder's uh, fleshbound Bible. Yeah, well, we did our part and you did, did your part in the book. Of course, the other historical reference I have to raise, and the first thing they teach you in law school is don't, as you know, don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. But the character that Gene Hackman played in A Bridge Too Far, yeah, whose name I cannot pronounce, but you know, very, very highly decorated Polish general who went on that raid. <clears throat> was he part of any of this? Was he around? Do you know during this? That's a really good question. I I don't know. Um, my um, like a lot of people who'd been in the war, my grandfather didn't talk about uh any of his um experience. So I didn't have a until right at the end when he was uh, and, I, and I I wasn't with him for his last weeks, but apparently he was interested in talking about uh, his time then. But um. I, I've corresponded with uh, the internet is a wonderful thing. Social media comes in for a real uh, bad rep, I think, um, an unjustified one in many ways because it enables people to be connected in ways they wouldn't otherwise be. And I um, got in touch with a guy who's a real enthusiast for the history of the Allies at Arnhem, who lives in that part of the world. Mm. And he has made it his life's mission to maintain records of those who served and were captured at Arnhem and so forth. And he sent me the most remarkable um, uh, transcripts uh, of the accounts of my grandfather's capture, which were made by the Germans. Um, no, uh, no, up to and including my grandfather's um, signing out papers that he had no complaints about the way he'd been treated by huh. uh, the Germans as a, as a POW. You better believe you. That's what you bloody said on the form. Uh, so I don't put any credence. But I know my grandfather's handwriting, and I know for it because I've got a piece of his a letter from him on my wall. I know for a fact that that that's what it was. It wasn't some internet scam or something. This yeah. guy didn't want anything from me anyway. He just was sharing yeah. with. He had photos of my grandfather, so it really wasn't a scam. He had, he just made it his life's mission, and he had an account from the regimental write-up and from the German accounts of how my grandfather was captured in a church and they had a shootout in the church, uh, which um, uh, recalled for me a number of um, uh, movies, uh, yeah. not, not least uh, The Eagle Has Landed, when there's a, a famous kind of shootout in a, yeah. in a, in a rural church in England. Um, anyway, uh, I, I and that, um, that passage of the time in Arnhem, something my grandfather never talked about he um always it came to me afterwards that many of the people on the march with him uh to um concentration camps uh that he, that he was in prisoner of war camps um and by the way those two things were mixed in the course of yeah. the second world war yeah, yeah. um uh, the germans didn't have enough uh soldiers properly to um guard <clears throat> those who were going so they brutalized every other man uh, in order to make sure that what the other person had to carry his mate uh, so as to slow the column down and yeah. um uh, and i'm afraid i never my grandfather had no, no visible injuries by the time that i uh, knew him in the 1980s but of course it's a long time afterwards and i don't know whether he was the unbrutalized or the brutalized yeah. and um, wow. 
as powerful. So, so that's how little I know about from my grandfather about the time of the Second World War. Um, he he then when he sent me his wings that he, that he'd worn throughout um, his service, uh, he wrote the uh, the dates and units in which he'd served, and that's about all I got. Wow. Well, uh, I don't know if it's too personal, but I'm sure our viewers and listeners would love to see some of that documentation if if you're willing and able to put it in the show notes. You hold on there one second. I'm going to hold it up to the camera one second. Perfect. And while we're doing that, I will simply remind everyone of a point that we made in the last episode from another story of Alex's, which is the meticulous record keeping of the Nazi regime. And so I'm wondering if they even recorded their own brutalization, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. So here I am, and you probably can't, uh, of course, for anyone listening, you can't see it. We'll put it in the show notes. I got a framed copy wow. of it's my grandfather's wings uh, and uh, his, um, this is, he, I've got a, his um, association, POW association badge and a uh. couple of the, um, the jacket, uh, the insignia he was entitled to wear. To my shame, there's a couple of others of these that are still in my uh, my mother's home that I, I didn't have, so I could could frame them. And very spindly writing, and it's it's a little faded by uh, by time. But his letter to me saying these are the wings um, of the Army Air Corps uh, of which the Glider Pilot Regiment were part, and then he gives the dates and uh, uh, and units he served in below that. Um, here. Uh. So uh, I uh, I very honor very happy to honor his memory. Yeah, that's that's <clears throat> that's remarkable. So uh, I, I take it you were close with him at least for some period of time. I was very young. Uh, you know, my, my mother was the youngest of four, and um, and he had his, as a lot of as a lot of veterans did. He had his children relatively old. So um, he died in my early teens, and I think I was the. I was one of the grandchildren that he saw more. Um, I've got some wonderful cousins and no slights on them, but I was one of the, the grandchildren he saw more. And I was one of them that showed an interest. And also uh, I was a boy and there are certain, you know, it's not a, perhaps yeah. it's crass and it's, it's old fashioned, but some, some people feel that connection. I played with soldiers and other, you know, yeah, there was a, there was an obvious thing that I was more interested, I suppose. Perhaps he picked up on my early and nascent love of history. Perhaps he helped uh, foster it. Well, that was, that's my next question. Yeah. Would you, we, can you draw a line from learning about your grandfather and actually being able to touch the artifacts and your, and your, your enthusiastic amateur historian status? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So my, um my, Another thing that very often happened, I think only uh, exceeded by astronauts uh, in percentage terms, uh, my, like many veterans, my grandfather got divorced and, and remarried. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had two grandfathers from my, on my mother's side. Um, the one I grew up knowing married to my grandmother and, and my, um, my blood grandfather who uh, married a wonderful woman who, who died only very recently. And um, so my other grandfather from on my mother's side, my, my mother's stepfather was in the artillery. Uh, and he was perfectly willing to talk about things. I just was a bit too ignorant to have asked at the time when uh, when he died. And my father's father died before I was born. And he was the most mm. senior of the lot. He was a major and he was uh, he took the surrender of a whole bunch of Italians, which on, on one mocking view might not be that hard. But uh, took, <laughs> I, took almost single handed, took some bravery at the time when you see a long column of Italians. Uh, oh, yeah. coming coming at you across uh, the north african desert turned out they were actually looking for somebody to surrender to so uh when when he charged up to them he was on a good innings but uh, he wasn't to know that at the time um my 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 grandfather on my father's side was a life was a career um soldier he wasn't a, a volunteer he was a, a lifelong um infantryman and so that that was different but so it's, it's sort of the interest is in my blood i suppose but um of the three um that's the my grandfather's wings from Arnhem are the things I, I I really you know I look at it every day. Of course, yeah, yeah, and I I've seen that in your home, but I guess I didn't go and read the the history of it. I didn't sure. realize what it was. That's amazing. Well, this kind of heroism and also the training uh, that that the OSE gave to the polls. And by the way, for our American listeners and viewers, the Office of Special Executive, I would argue, Alex is akin to the Office of Strategic Services in the United States during yes. World War II, which became the Central Intelligence Agency, which is, you know, my career. So uh, I have a certain fondness for that. But it's clear 
I don't have any classified information. I wouldn't talk about it if I did, but it's clear that probably your government and my government have spent a lot of time and energy teaching the Ukrainians how to resist and how to fight uh, and how to do all couldn't the agree, unsavory things. And yeah. also have provided intelligence that have assisted the Ukrainians in targeting and identifying yeah. uh, Russian assets. And cheers to us. Cheers. And your government. And in fact, uh, you know, the company that you and I both both work with that uh, was the, the, the circumstance, a happy circumstance that we met is in there supporting the fight, too. So that's all good. I want to talk, though. As we sit here, uh, I guess, 13 months after the Russian invasion, you know, we talked about this a lot early on, uh, gotten away from it a little bit as things sort of ground to a stalemate. But what's happened most recently, two things, I guess I want to just mention before we get to our next two stories, by the way, everybody, a three for today, three stories for the price of one. Uh, one, Alex, is this remarkable resistance in Bakhmut. I mean, yeah, I might I might have this slightly wrong, but I'm pretty sure the Russians have been about to take Bakhmut since November. And most Western military authorities say there's not a lot of strategic significance to that. But boy, they're holding out. Uh, it's got to be a huge blow to Putin. It's amazing. And it happens all the time in the history of conflict that a place that people think is going to be a real tough nut uh, folds quickly. And a place that is almost nowhere on a map that people think is just going to get rolled over turns out for by whatever reason, by dint of leadership, by dint of preparation, by dint of material in the right place at the right time, by dint of a combination of these things to be a real sticking point for a, an invasion force. And you're talking about, boy, are you talking about one of them? Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned the ones that fall surprisingly easily, I have to make a callback to our very first episode where we talked about Fort Budge Budge. Yes. Taken down by a single able seaman, as I recall. Well, single able seaman to start with. He was lucky that some of his mates True. came his along mates and gave him, him, yeah. gave him a hand, not least because he dinged his sword very quickly, probably <laughs> on the uh, earthworks of the fort concerned. Uh, but and, yeah, that's a good callback. And while we're shamelessly trying to get people to listen again to our pilot episode from, uh, I believe, February of 2022. Oh, wow. That's a year, every year, yeah. It contains the opposite your people and the Native Americans thought they were going to crush little Fort Stevenson in my hometown and uh, our intrepid band with one cannon, you know, held them off, perhaps changed well, the course of the war. Albeit in hindsight, your uh, resistance of Native Americans is just a naked, naked sign of your bigotry. So really, uh, you should have folded the British, didn't you? Well, not mine personally, I hope you're saying. No, I'm your general. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> I was only joking, obviously joking in the first place. Here's the other thing I want to talk about as we sit here in uh, mid-March of 2023. Once again, Vladimir Putin has pushed the nuclear button, threat button by saying that he plans to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, which, of course, is the neighbor of Ukraine and Poland. So it's adjacent to NATO territory. Mm. And it sounds like a bad news story. And if it actually happens, it is a bad news story. But it's a pattern now with him. He only makes these kinds of apocalyptic threats when he's really losing. So I don't know. I think it might be a good news story. Well, I, I hope you're right. I, I do note, though, that um, his proxies make these um, wild threats rather more often. Yeah. And... Um, so it's a very tightly controlled media environment out of Russia, obviously. Yeah. And um, Medvedev, who people will recall, was prime minister, then was the Patsy president for a while, then yeah. nominated Putin to come back. And he was clearly just keeping the seat warm for Putin whilst they yeah. lined out their constitution so Putin could be president for life. For life Medvedev, yeah. who's still got a kind of a role, deputy, I think he's deputy secretary to the Security Council. Anyway, he's a Putin water carrier that's his, that's his role pup has been out there talking about nuclear weapons for some time and and not just once so yeah. it, there's no way that Medvedev makes comments without the approval of the, the putin regime the kremlin that's right. his whole purpose and existence so putin's been trying to echo to make this point for some time through his proxies and maybe he just feels like it hasn't come across yet so he's now making it more directly 
the we've talked about it before on the podcast the soviets are the only people who ever had n- nuclear weapons in their order of battle that is to say in conventional warfare yes or, um, yeah yeah and the russians have inherited that order of battle it's never been disowned so um i fear that i take these things rather more seriously than some people who think it's just spear uh shaking and uh, sword rattling saber rattling i mean after all there are those and i I kind of fall in this camp i thought putin wasn't going to be so stupid as to invade in the first place you find very few people willing to admit now that they were wrong over a year ago i was one of them i was not one of them no you you were right on that that's correct you were you were right on that and i was wrong i will say that well first of all you're 100 percent right soviet military doctrine which russia has inherited is they do not draw the line between conventional weapons and weapons of mass no, destruction. So the and only power to, that ever did that. And to be clear, I am not. I'm not trying to downplay the risk that Putin would be, on one definition, insane enough to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, I think we, when we had Mary Beth Long on a year ago, we, 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 we. I put the risk at somewhere north of ten percent, and she, who was a assistant secretary of defense and career CIA officer put it more like in the twenties. So I, I agree. It's a, it's a serious risk. I'm not downplaying. All I'm saying is I haven't gone back and precisely researched this, but I think the moments where Putin himself has talked about it tend to coincide with times when he's getting very seriously beaten on the battlefield. It's a very interesting theory. Uh, Hopefully there's a scholar out there listening to us. Who's going to take up the Cunningham theory. Well, now that we're on the topic of modern military affairs, let's talk about uh, Mad Dog Mattis from uh, yeah, great more story from history. Not least, say your president uh, Trump uh, had already used that um, uh, that nickname uh, in social media before he actually met Jim Mattis, and then he asked Mattis, "Do the troops actually call you Mad Dog?" Uh, this is in the course of him nominating uh, Jim Mattis to right. the cabinet. And uh, Mattis said, no, sir, I'm called chaos. Uh, and I, I love the word. Of, I love the notion of President Trump being lost for words. Um, President Trump sort of asked, why is that? And it, it turns out Colonel has another outstanding uh, suggestion. Which is not uh, a compliment. No, correct. Uh, chaos had stuck with Mattis ever since he was a relatively junior officer. So he was a lifelong uh, Marine Corps man and was, of course, your uh, Secretary of Defense. Uh, and the story about him I'm going to tell uh, comes to us from the former commandant of the Marine Corps, General Krulak, um, which he told in part to make a story about how cool he is himself. Yeah. But we're going to forgive him that. Nice West Wing callback, by the way. Uh, much obliged. Uh, yes, uh, indeed. That's the, that is exactly what I was doing when I wrote it. Uh, it's a uh, President Bartlett. Uh, it's a story about how cool I am. Um, but we'll forgive um, Krulak that in the circumstances. Christmas Day each year, Krulak would drive around the lonely Marine guard posts in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And he would give some cookies and fellowship to the poor souls uh, uh, who'd pulled uh, guard duty amongst the Marines that day. One such occasion, he stopped at Quantico. Uh, Brian, you want to tell people what Quantico is? Most people think of Quantico as an FBI facility because it's been used in TV shows. But Quantico is uh, a main headquarters for the United States Marine Corps also in Virginia. And uh, Krulak meets a lance corporal uh, at the gate and he asks, uh, who's the officer of the day? The lance corporal says, sir, it's Brigadier General Mattis. Krulak says, no, I know General Mattis. Who is the officer on duty today, Christmas Day? And the lance corporal says, "Uh, it really is Brigadier General (laughs) Mattis. And Krulak barges in and points to the cot at the back of the guard post and says, right, son. Which officer slept there on Christmas Eve? <laughs> uh, uh, the last corporal says, sir, it was Brigadier General Mattis. And saving crew like a popped vein and the last corporal a world of pain, Jim Mattis walked in at that moment in his duty uniform. Krulak said, Jim, it's Christmas Day. What are you doing here? Mattis said, well, the young man who was on the roster as duty officer for today has a young family. And I thought he should spend Christmas Day with them. So I put myself down for the Christmas Day shift instead. Um, 
And I, wow. yeah, so Mattis cared about those under his command, and he led by actions that showed that, not with fine words, uh, but with orders. And of course, the same is true of Krulak, because it took both of them to be there at an obscure guard post one Christmas day morning to know that moment had happened at all. And as one um, veteran of our forces and now member of parliament in tweeting my story uh, said uh, succinctly, leadership is service. Yeah. Yeah. Lead by example. Yeah. Well, you probably recall, uh, Alex, that our guest I just mentioned, Ringo Mary, Mary Beth Long, she, she's quite close with, uh, with General Mattis. I, I have a- Is that right? passing acquaintance with him she's very close to him and she has said to me that he is um in public and in private uh one of the greatest leaders that she's ever seen so i'll give you two Which is my, saying my, something yeah well she's seen a lot right so i'll give you my two favorite mattis quotes first favorite mattis quote be polite be professional have a plan to kill everybody you meet <laughs> I I just think that's I think that's that's a very sobering thought that anyone who meets uh, someone whose job is war fighting, whose job is to combat the, the king's enemies in my in my case and and to defeat them, uh, you know, kinetic action has all manner of euphemisms. But you're meeting this person; they're polite and they're professional, but they've got a plan to kill you. I live by at least one of those three. <laughs> yeah okay i'm certainly not gonna pin you down which and my second uh jim mattis quote is powerpoint makes us stupid mm, now you yeah. think about some of those presentations that were put up during afghanistan and during the conflict uh there and think about what we do in corporate life with powerpoint i think it's quite a profound short phrases quite often convey deep profound meanings powerpoint makes us stupid yeah it's it's true I've I've evolved my PowerPoint style a lot over the years. And when I use it at all, it has nothing. First of all, it's like five slides or less and it just has right. images. There's no words ever. It's just, it's, it's the process makes you stupid. It, you can't say it better than that. Um, so let, let me ask you this, Alex. So we, we uh, in public and private have disagreed a bit on our analysis of president Trump. Um, and of course, Mattis served as Secretary of Defense under President Trump. I doubt we would disagree on this, that it must have been, not that the job of Secretary of Defense is not always extremely difficult, and not that we haven't had more colorful presidents as well, but had to be pretty hard under <laughs> President Trump, because you basically, I, I the way, and I think about this about CIA chiefs of station and ambassadors as well. Mm. You're pretty much improvising all day, every day, based on the latest tweet. So on the one hand, I agree with that, of course. Unpredictability in the chain of command is in and of itself a major issue and problem. And certainty in leadership is a vastly underrated quality. Knowing where your boss is going is at least as important as uh, as confidence that, that they've made the right decision day to day. Yeah, very I, famous. I, very famous aphorism is a good decision today is much better than an excellent decision six months from now. Yeah, co correct. And changing your mind presents all manner of challenges and problems for those serving under you. And I, I take that point. On the other hand, I can't help but think that it's more difficult being uh, Secretary of Defense when Russia has launched a land war than when they haven't. And they didn't during President Trump's regime. And therefore, I question your thesis. So we've, I, I, I always want to try to not exceed our West Wing quota per episode. But I will simply quote to you the title of episode two or three of the West Wing, which is post hoc ergo proctor hoc and uh, our listeners can figure out what i mean by that probably yeah but it's not it, well that may hold up that it's after it therefore because of it but it was during it, it is the point about four years of president trump's time in the white house that that russia didn't invade um anyone and of course it's not a it's not a partisan political issue because it was under president uh bush that um the russians invaded georgia and then it was under President Obama that they invaded uh, Crimea. And then you had the Trump interregnum. And then under President Biden, the Russians invaded Ukraine wholesale. And it's not 
after it, therefore, because of it. It was during that four years is the point I, I'm just I'm noting. So uh, you, you can, I, it's not even a wider point. Your question was just about whether it was easier or harder to be Secretary of State for Defense. I surmise that it was easier for President Trump's Secretary of State for Defense, Secretaries of Defense, to operate in their parameters than it was for their predecessors and successors, either side of that time when Russia launched no land war. That's all I comment. Yeah, uh, I mean, point well taken. I, I guess part of it depends on what you think of as making a job hard, right? So, you know, a guy like Jim Mattis, who was a career Marine general and then the Secretary of Defense, his entire life is dedicated to deterring a war, and if he can't deter it, fighting it. So is his job harder when he's directing an active conflict? I don't know. I, I, I don't know about that. It's a fair question. I mean, yes, you, you, your job is to prosecute military um, endeavors, uh, and here is one in front of you, so go at it. I, I take the point. But on, on the other hand, facing a nuclear power in a um, proxy war, um, people may not like the term, people may not like the comparison, but it's you now I'm convinced that those entrusted with our safety during the Cold War had as hard a job as those who fought hot wars. And um, not least because you had to perennially to be ready. And this may, of course, support your point, because those under President Trump had to switch and change their plans all the time, depending on the presidential whim or sense of, of direction. But my goodness, those <clears throat> concerned with Russia's aggression in the post-Soviet, post-capitalist experiment in Russia when they reverted to, you know, big man history under um, dictator Putin. I know they have elections but let's not kid ourselves they're real no. um usually there's 99 percent turnout imagine that in indeed um so my, my point i suppose would be that um i think it's it's just got to be a little easier when the russians haven't actually invaded somebody in your watch yeah fair well in any event i think we can agree that uh jim mattis is not just an american hero but a a leadership role model around around the globe as and, johnny and again, Mercer you know yeah, as Johnny Mercer tweeted uh, when I told that story, leadership is service. And cheers to both of our defense establishments. Cheers to them. Slava Ukraine. Mm. Slava Ukraine. Uh, All right, enough the, of that. The correct toast response is to the heroes of Ukraine, and I can't remember what the words are, but whatever that is. Well, you you were, you meant to say the right thing. You were well-intentioned. So uh, now let's transition to someone I think we would both agree, although we've never chatted about it, is a true global hero. Uh, and that is oh, Dwight Eisenhower. I couldn't agree more. Eisenhower graduated from West Point and was commissioned second lieutenant, as we would call it, in 1915. Promoted first lieutenant in 1916 as the First World War threatened to draw your country into conflict. And the month after America entered the First World War in 1917, he was promoted to captain, then to major, and then to lieutenant colonel. And those uh, last two were both as temporary ranks in 1918. And he reverted to his permanent rank of captain in 1920. So he was a lieutenant colonel, bumped down again, two ranks in 1920. And Which, you... let me just, sorry to interrupt, but let me just say for our listeners and viewers who are not steeped in the mil military hierarchy, that's a big deal. Right. That, that is essentially, it'd be roughly the, 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 it'd be roughly like going from, uh, a division chief in a big company, sub C-suite, to being like a program manager. It's a huge change. Correct. So he goes, end of 1917, he's promoted captain. 1918, you're a major. You're a lieutenant colonel. The war ends. 1920, he holds the temporary rank for two more years. Uh, 1920, back down to captain. And then, this is remarkable, back up to major, um, a few weeks after being bumped down, but he stays as major for 16 years. Unbelievable. After that, after putting his life on the line, 1936, he becomes a lieutenant colonel again, a rank he had held two decades prior. And there were no guarantees he would ever see a full colonel. And in most people's uh, evaluation would honestly and frankly have been little prospect of going past that. Indeed, he was still a lieutenant colonel in 1941, some five years later. First World War, Second World War started, 1939. Yeah. Still a lieutenant colonel in 1941. Nobody looks at that record 
and predicts he's going to go. That's the groundwork for a man who will become a full general in two years, who will go on to become supreme commander of uh, allied forces and become a beloved two-term president of your country. But the war came, history, sir, history called, and Eisenhower, by dint of a lifetime, a lifetime of unglamorous preparation, uh, was ready. Bear in mind, commissioned 1915, still a lieutenant colonel, 1941. And the meteoric rise after that to command all allied forces in, in Europe. Well, let me just say, let me just let me just point out a fact without comment one way or the other. As I understand the modern rules of the U.S. military, he could not have held that rank for that long. He would have been out. So I'm not sure whether we've got it right at this because point. Because you've got you because you've got an up or out structure. Up or out, right? Yeah. Um, that may, of course, all everybody's armed forces. I say everybody's. Everybody in the West's armed forces were larger then uh, than they yeah. are now. But you probably got a point. The lesson for me from this uh, remarkable example of uh, of personal success is, I suppose, obvious. But there are lulls and becalmed times in one's career. One mustn't be uh, disheartened. Keep going. I think that's uh, an important lesson. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That that's it's one of the 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 the. If he said, I said him honestly. It's one of the best lessons I I think I've, I've got in my books. Um, the example of Eisenhower. Everyone remembers how he ended his career. No yeah. one remembers the two decades in the backwater before that. It's not even yeah, like yeah. Churchill was in and then out and had an, a wilderness period and then back in. Eisenhower had a full-blown backwater two decades before he made it. And real backwater. Like even a lieutenant colonel in the United States military is not at anything close to a policy level, much less a you know command and future president level. That is a junior officer. Yeah. And it reminds me of the probably the only thing you'll ever hear me say favorably about Kevin McCarthy, which is um, in his in his acceptance speech after he was finally uh, elected speaker of our House of Representatives, he quoted his father or his grandfather, I think his father, who said, Kevin, it doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you end up, uh, because he had just gone through, you know, 19 ballots or whatever right. it was to get there. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the same with Eisenhower. I also can't help but remind everyone that my grandparents wrote to President Eisenhower right. uh, in the 50s and asked him to recognize uh, the existence of UFOs. But we'll forgive him that. He had an amazing life and career notwithstanding. I have only, um, I, I've met properly once with, uh, we had dinner once, um, I had dinner with um, Kevin McCarthy. And I would tell you this from my Maybe I met him over the course of a day or so, and we sat down at dinner. There is not a there is not an ounce of malice in that man, um, and what you see is what you get in the kind of pragmatic guy trying to do his best. Now he may fall long way short of your idea of an ideal politician, but I'm telling you, with with no malice in him, that's a great deal better than you can say of a number of political figures of this day. It's true. And uh, a number of Democrats in our country uh, 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 are not also without malice. I, I will say, you know, I've never met the man, so you've, you've already got a one up on me. He he certainly comes across always or almost always as a as a happy warrior. Um, and, and I, I it's, it's easy for me to believe that he doesn't have personal malice. I, I will say this, though. You know, we have a big dispute in our country about the status of Donald Trump, and you and I have a big dispute between each other about the goodness versus badness of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, McCarthy had a moment when Trump was on the mat and uh, could have probably been easily um, put into the ash bin of history of U.S. politics um, after his second impeachment. And uh, McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago after having publicly excoriated Trump for his role uh, in the January insurrection in our country. Then he went down and resurrected him. And I, I, my observation of it is, I don't think Kevin McCarthy thought the January 6th was a good day. I think he just nakedly wanted power and he was going to do whatever he could to get it. And that's not entirely inconsistent with not having malice, but it's a killer for me. It's uh, I can't support the guy. Well, there's a very big gap between the events you're describing and him becoming speaker. 
just in terms of timing. Oh, that's true. And, yeah, that's true. and uh, I don't think anyone would have looked at that and thought that was the bet. And of course, when Trump, President Trump, did endorse um, Kevin McCarthy to be speaker, it was on the, the most milk toast of bases. It was be careful what you wish for. If you wish for the extreme, sometimes you get the uh, the far more liberal outcome as a result. It's not exactly a full throated endorsement. But I, but your your points well made. And all I can think about in that is that you know people can do things that they think are the right thing whilst also being seen as being self-serving not least seeking without having any particular insight into the example we're discussing uh wishing to hold together their political party and trying to hold together different wings of their political movement yeah, yeah. so that they they don't reach um points of irreconcilable uh, difference hey i wanted to give you one more eisenhower anecdote uh, yes please uh Vichy France. Um, people always forget the extent of collaboration in in France, uh, yeah. and Vichy France extended the anti-Semitic laws that they um, had from the uh, the Germans to their French colonies in North Africa. So suddenly, North African colonies uh, had these um, anti-Jewish provisions, and when Eisenhower and his troops in Africa marching up and liberating the French colonies uh, came there. It fell to them to undo um, the wrongs that had been done by the Vichy French regime. And um, the detractors of what they were doing as they went about restoring property or putting in place civil courts or putting back in place um, civil authorities so that they could oversee reconstruction, their detractors who had done well under the Vichy regime put it about that Eisenhower and his family were Jewish. <laughs> they were they were in fact Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Eisenhower therefore became fond of telling us his friends a story that his brother Milton, incredible family, his brother Milton was a very senior civil servant under um, uh, Roosevelt and Truman. And Milton told uh, Ike that he'd been at this dinner party and um, the dowager hostess had turned to him at the appropriate point in the dinner when you talk to the person on your right and said, hey, Milton, you're so successful. You're one of our leading civil servants. You've got a brother who runs one of our most esteemed banks. And of course, you've got a brother in Europe or Africa leading our troops. What a pity you, Eisenhower, are Jewish. And Eisenhower used to love, Ike used to love telling how his brother, Eisenhower Milton, put on this mournful face and sighed unhappily and said, Ah, oh, madam, what a pity it is we aren't. That is not only great, it's almost uh, Churchillian. I'm, I'm, I can't pull a quote out of my head fast enough, but you'll know it. Um, something about if you were a lady, I'd let you. What is that? What is that? Yes, that's George actually it's George Bernard Shaw, actually. If, so I think oh. um, I think one somebody, a woman said to George Bernard Shaw, if you, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your tea. And he said, if you were my <laughs> wife, I'd drink it. And I think it's it, it's sometimes, it, it may actually be a Churchillism, but I think it's often ascribed to Churchill, but in my mind, I think it's George yeah. Bernard Shaw. Certainly it's well, George Bernard Shaw who said to a woman, um, uh, would you, it's pointed across the room to a kind of matinee idol of the day and said, would you sleep with him for a thousand pounds? And this woman said, well, you know, I might. And he said, well, would you sleep with me for sixpence? Uh, and she said, what do you take me for? And he said, we've already established what you are. I'm just trying to yes. negotiate the fee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, no, that, that is, it's funny you mentioned that because my father, who was an Episcopal minister and probably didn't have that great a sense of humor and certainly never showed it to us. He has a version of that story and I can never remember anything but the punchline, which is, well, now that's settled. We're just negotiating. So that <laughs> now right. I know what that is. So that's that is George Yeah. So we're going to let everybody have 10 minutes back of their hour, but uh, a couple of uh, plugs I want to make. Um, one is uh, please go back and watch our uh, live episode from London. It's uh, I had an amazing time doing it. I know you did too. Please go to High Timber and have the, what is it, the Alex Dean salad? Yep. I got a salad named after me. Look, if you're going to choose a dish, choose, you know, one people, a lot of people order. And the and the and the Jordan uh, Chardonnay, yeah, that's delicious, absolutely yeah. delicious. Please they look after us so well. I have another plug, and although Alex, you were severely missed last week, I really enjoyed my conversation with Michael Dennett at UC Irvine. I bought his book, Divine Science: uh, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith. That it's looks amazing. that looks a very interesting read. 
it's really good. I, 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 I guess probably our listeners have gathered that, you know, I've got ministers in my family, I've got UFOs in my family, and I've for decades thought about this issue of, you know, how much science and faith relate to each other and how compatible they are. That's a great, great. Give us the title again, Divine Science. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's uh, yeah. Divine Science. Finding okay. Reason at the Heart of Faith. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so, so Denon is a physicist, and um, he's also a religious person. Anyway, so it's very, very good. Now, notwithstanding my boisterous statements in London that that was our 48th episode, it was not. <laughs> Last week was our 48th episode, which means this is our 49th episode, which means, Alex, we're coming up on 50 episodes of the Hidden History Half Happy Hour. Half century coming up. Cheers. Cheers. So... Viewers and listeners, we're going to put out a poll. We're going to do a retrospective of year one of the first 50 episodes, and we want to know what you think are your favorites, and we're going to talk about those, and we'll probably slide in a new story also, which leads me to my last topic, Alex. How is volume three going? Well, I'm, this is you, you were putting in plugs. I would like some recommendations for stories. I just put in, just put up a story um, about the Samnites who were, um, uh, opponents of the Romans for a good, good long time before they went the way of the uh, the traditional Roman opponent uh, during Rome's prime, which was oblivion. Um, right. But it's got some good uh, lessons uh, in it. No half measures being a real lesson from that story. And uh, actually, to the topics we've been discussing, listen to yeah. your father being being another. Uh, but so I did uh, what he said immodestly is a good story um, this week. But I welcome topics. Volume three is coming on a pace. That is great. Good to know. I hope I'll have a few things to contribute to it. I I hope we can have some more uh, UFO stories that we can get Mr. Denon to comment on. Uh, we always love talking about uh, unexplained phenomenon. Also, Absolutely. I want to uh, I want to hear more stories from children who had to encounter grotesque artifacts at their local uh, ah, museum. There's got to be more out there than me. <laughs> I just had a I all I had to do was go look at a cannon. You had to touch a leather bound uh, Bible. But the Grizzly. thing is, the, the thing is, you say had to. When you're that age, when you're seven oh, yeah. or eight, and someone That's says true. to you, "Do you want to touch this this Bible That's bound true. in human flesh?" You know, there's not much take holding you back. <laughs> you're it, quite it, 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 it is true. It is true. Well, on that on that grisly note, uh, let's call it a day, Alex. I look forward to next time. Thank you, brother. Uh, thanks, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.